this episode, we'll continue our discussion on reducing PSIs. I'm your host, Dr. Tomas Villanueva, Senior Principal for Operations and Quality of Vision and Practicing Internist. Joining me again is Dr. Dev Manuro, Rachel Lake, and Dr. Khalid Zuraki, all work successfully to reduce PSIs at Sanford Health in Fargo, North Dakota. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Glad to be back. Thanks, Tomas. KZ, I'd love your perspective as well as a surgeon on the aspects of this being more of a PI and a peer education versus peer review. In peer review, we usually meet as surgeons and we discuss Uh a case and then we render an opinion on what else should have been done to prevent this from recurring. The purpose of PSI is mostly to educate the physicians about what is being considered as a PSI. I can give you an example. And I don't think that's HIPAA violation. There's no basically MRNs or patient names. Right. But that's an example. An OBGYN was dealing with a possible bowel injury, asked the surgeon to come and take a look at the bowel. The surgeon decided to do a temporary measure, leaving the belly open and coming back the next day to take a look. And then when they came back the next day, they fixed the bowel. So this resulted into a PSI 15 because although it was recognized during the surgery, the first surgery, it was not fixed till the second surgery. I met with the OBGYN teams and gave them an education about the PSIs. This is totally different from a peer review session where we go and discuss why the injury happened rather than informing them about what is considered a PSI or not. So that's the difference basically between the two, more of explaining them what is the implication of uh, a PSI. That brings up a very good point and a great segue into Rachel, because sometimes there's a conflict of what's considered a PSI, what documentation sees it, and then the conflict even with coding. So I could see where a PSI nurse reviewer is going to be important to put things together. Rachel, can you kind of give us more of a detail of that role? Yeah, absolutely. So as I had mentioned, CDI sees a good variety of our cases, but they don't see all of them. And so having that dedicated quality team member to be able to review all the cases that are flagging for PSIs means you don't miss any. It doesn't matter what the payer is. And so I find it really important because I'm also kind of that first layer of Swiss cheese. I don't bring all of these cases to KZ and Dev, but I do review at least about 50 cases a quarter. And so being able to comb through them and some of the things I can resolve on my own just by working with coding and CDI, if it's a simple coding correction or I feel that there's documentation in the chart that isn't being picked up by a certain ICD-10 code that would either exclude the patient from the measure or count them not to be in the numerator at all. Those are the kind of the things that I see on my review. Dev mentioned having a dedicated nurse reviewer. So in addition to taking time to review the specs that change every year, as detailed as they are, also having that clinical background and questioning attitude with critical thinking really helps kind of make it easier to get from point A to point B when you're reviewing a chart. You guys actually overemphasize the importance of having physician leadership in this area, not only within medicine, even surgery, and even the role of the PSI nurse reviewer. But quite frankly, many of our organizations out there are struggling with resources. So what would you say to them? Tom, it's very important to invest on a PSI nurse reviewer. If there is something I would not forego in this project is not having a nurse reviewer is going to be a challenge for institutions. Subsequently, even if the institution cannot hire a full-time quality officer or a surgical officer, just identifying and giving some time to a quality physician or a surgical physician is important. I think these three pieces you can miss. And now if they want success for the patients and their institution, then they really have to pursue some steps from this cogwheel that I just spoke about. 
So if there's something that I've learned in doing this kind of work around the country, it's the importance of executive leadership. Can you tell me about your experience on the importance of that? Yes, Tom. So executive leadership involvement and prioritization of this work is important. We have been fortunate at Sanford Medical Center and also as an enterprise to have an executive leadership that believes to provide quality and safe care. And they have been so supportive of innovations, interventions, and non-punitive coaching of clinicians, knowing the gaps in knowledge of clinicians around this topic. I want to emphasize that word non-punitive because a lot of executive leaderships go after clinicians and the teams with not of a punitive intent, but it's more like you got to do this kind of an attitude when they really didn't even know that this is how it's done or how it gets counted and all of those aspects. So the non-punitive piece is the golden nugget, I would say, for this work. I'd like to clarify executive leadership includes the entire C-suite department executive directors, department chairs, vice chairs, nursing leaders on the floors. Institutions looking to enhance their work around PSIs should definitely have an executive leadership that approaches this work in a non-punitive fashion and supports the development of sustainment strategies. Because you can start a project, but if you don't invest on sustainment strategies, it's not going to live long. Yeah, I would agree with Dev. So having a partnership with an executive leadership, specifically, I'm partnered with an executive leader, and that is just one of her main buckets is helping to support patient safety indicators. So with her, I have an excuse to be at the table for these conversations, and it's a non-negotiable standing agenda topic. And really, overall, it helps make it part of the strategic objectives of the organization. Another example of executive leadership is the establishment of my role as the surgical quality officer in our institution. This happened in January 2023, and this was part of a long-term plan to align Sanford Health with the American College of Surgeons' emphasis on surgical quality and prevention of harm to patients. I believe there is no other surgical quality officer in both Dakotas, North and South Dakota. So that was an undertaking in our institution to create that position. But this should be a standard across all institutions in the country, especially big academic centers like ours. And that was prioritized by our leadership. That's fascinating. And I think actually be best practice. So you guys also mentioned that there was a computer-assisted coding software program and a stop-bill process. Now, what fascinates me about this, since this process is mostly led by revenue cycle, how did you accomplish that? Yeah, I can start to answer that. So with the computer-assisted coding software program, that wasn't new. We've had that for years. That's what our coding and our CDI teams use. We specifically use 3M, 360, and Compass. It was really the stop-bill process that took, honestly, years to accomplish. And like you said, really involves the revenue cycle. So it was building trust in a relationship that this was not going to delay our revenue cycle. So backing up a little bit, really just having that reliable software was that first step. So we had that software, which flags us to the PSIs, but they were still getting billed and out the door prior to somebody having a chance to review them. And so the crucial step is just having that software to identify. Establishing the stop bill process, like I said, took a period of time. We advocated for the necessity of the stop bill to allow the trained quality PSI nurse reviewer to have that adequate opportunity to review every flagged case prior to billing, no matter the payer. And so we ensured our revenue teams that these reviews would be prioritized, would not lead to a delay in billing, and would be reviewed and released within 24 to 48 hours of that automatic stop bill being applied. 
The stop bill process automatically gets applied in the EMR once coding is complete and detects that the case has flagged for a PSI based on the software identification. And so the PSI nurse reviewer is responsible for then doing that final release of the stop bill, allowing the billing to proceed after review if there's no recommended changes and the PSI is legitimate, or we'll keep the stop bill in place to elevate those specific opportunities for correction or coding capture to CDI, coding, or HIM immediately. Ultimately, this has not delayed billing and has reduced the burden of rebill requests. You also mentioned contacts between CDI, coding, and health information management teams. We feel that that dotted line is best practice in doing this work. So I'd love to hear how you accomplish that. Yeah. So as I mentioned, it's building trust and it takes time. Our executive leadership direction was vital. So our PSI team consists of a CDI team supervisor and coding team supervisors. HIM team leadership is not really a standing member of our PSI team or group, just because the involvement is kind of minimal and kind of nuanced when it comes to pulling them in. And so the day-to-day review process of potential PSIs through the 3M software is pursued by that quality team PSI nurse navigator. When I'm doing a PSI review and it needs to go to coding or HIM, I'll elevate specifically to those leaders. But I mentioned HIM is kind of an ancillary partner with us. So three of the PSIs within that PSI 90 only count on elective admission status types. Hmm. So it's very important to validate that this is accurate as part of that PSI review with every case. When it comes to discussing a case that CDI is already reviewing, I'll start by connecting with that CDI team member assigned to that case since they'll have that knowledge. We have a total of 11 CDI nurses that represent the Fargo region. So I connect with coding team, assign lead team member on coding related aspects on a daily basis. That daily work is done through emails, secure messages, and phone calls. We have a papered swim lane and flow map that determines the workflow. And in addition, we meet as a team every quarter to discuss updates, trends, questions, and things like that. So there are also additional reporting meetings with regional leadership teams in further trying to standardize that that work across our enterprise. As a CDI team physician advisor, I'd like to add a little more information on this. CDI team plays a very important role. CDI team would help the quality team members in reviewing the chart additionally, validate accurate and truthful situations, facilitate generation of query questions to bring clarity to the clinical situations, and support accurate capture of PSI events to the best possible extent. It is important for CDI leaders to discuss with their team members whether they're a part of the PSI process or not about PSIs because they're already reviewing charts. So it doesn't make sense to have them review that chart again just for PSIs if they have PSI as a checklist in their workflows. The key to getting this done is through education, but quite frankly, the most difficult and especially getting education to the frontline clinicians is not only key, but many times difficult. And especially with so many disruptors going on and even considering, which I'm very impressed that you started this during the pandemic. So how did you do this? How did you engage these frontline clinicians? I think the necessity is the mother of invention statement Yeah, <laughs> comes up. So it started off because we did not have good representation of our quality work on Vizient. And our executive leadership was very ready to change this because this is not what we are at Sanford Fargo and this is not the type of care we provide to our patients. So we took this ranking back to all clinicians and we said, what do you think of yourselves and what do you think the type of care that you're giving? What ranking do you think you hold across the communities of healthcare industries? So people started saying, oh, we're the 10th rank, we're the 15th rank, we're the 20th rank. 
And then when I asked them, well, on a CMS ranking scale, where do you see yourself? They were fairly way off to the better side. And then when they saw the scores, reality hit hard. And they said, yes, I think we need to do something about it. But we also shared that this is not the front and center. You do what you need to do for the patient's bedside, but you also keep this at the back of your mind because this is what you're kind of measured against. So that's the first setting stone that brought us this success. And then we had a very strong workflow and we had key stakeholders at the table every time we met. So that's what helped us. Yeah, I can add on. When I had mentioned those indicators within PSI-90, a lot of them are perioperative or more physician-focused, but there's a select few that really focus on nursing care and nursing having the ability to intervene or prevent these from happening. And so we really targeted our focus to the ones that made the most sense for nursing. So PSI-3 or pressure ulcer, nurses are already doing a lot of work to prevent HAPIs or hospital-acquired pressure injuries, but giving them that added education as to progression of a wound already existing, it may not be a HAPI because they came in with a stage 2, but it will be a PSI-3 because under our watch it progressed. So things like that and really just making sure that we're doing our best to prevent that from occurring. Otherwise, kind of spreading the rest of the indicators that have less of a nursing focus, just kind of covered at brief platforms, such as like Nursing Senate, just to keep them in the know. But sharing it with our frontline physician teams, we really found that what was most beneficial was sharing with our surgeon groups at department meetings in a consistent way that they were kind of used to us presenting, using de-identified case study examples of wins and opportunities, and then benchmarking data using the Vizient CDB, and sharing that overlap of quality measures that they're already more familiar with, like the American College of Surgeons programs, NISQIP. KZ, I'd love to hear your perspective. As Rachel mentioned, Rachel takes one duty off my shoulder by showing up at the general surgery department team and she talks about these initiatives with our surgeons. Where I'm involved, though, is usually in my role as a director of resident education at the general surgery residency program at UND, which is University of North Dakota, where I organize with dev updates of our work and our quality projects and initiative to the surgical residents during their protected educational times. So in the past year, this occurred around once every four to five months. We did that. So this is how we divided the roles. Rachel takes some of the work. I do some of the work. And Tom, I'd like to add a little bit more on education. Please. So at the University of North Dakota School of Medicine and Health Sciences, students receive education on value-based purchasing, quality and safety, patient experience during their internal medicine clerkship. We've been doing this for the last, I'd say, about three years now. Subsequently, residents receive a refresher of these expectations at the beginning of every inpatient rotation during training. So this is how the frontline graduate medical education and undergraduate medical education have been receiving education about PSIs. And they have been a big part of the change that we're seeing. We've developed steps to capture new hired clinicians as much as possible and deliver this knowledge because, you know, there are a lot of clinicians that come into institutions without awareness of PSI stuff. So we've developed a lot of interventions to capture these new clinicians. For example, since 2021, I've met with more than 40 hospitalist practitioners on this topic. APP Council meetings is another venue that we've used. As unit physician champions, we have reviewed and continue to review these topics at nursing unit meetings and nursing senate meetings, like Rachel said. So there are different groups we need to touch on. And I think it's very important that we don't miss these. Everyone, great discussion. Next episode, we'll continue examining what you've done at Samford Health.
And to our listeners, you can contact the Sanford team at their email addresses in the research section of our podcast page. And if you have any additional questions pertaining to modern practice or simply want to send us your comments, please contact me at our email at modernpracticepodcast at vizianinc.com. We've also posted a link in our research section as well. And please join us for other modern practice podcasts. Subscribe today, like us, or send us your comments. I'm Dr. Tomas Villanueva. Thank you so much for listening.